A very warm welcome to this episode of Paradise Talks. I'm Emma Bartholomew and today we focus on TV, specifically the TV streaming wars, asking the question, are we drowning in premium TV streaming platforms? It doesn't take a genius to conclude that the TV industry and specifically the way we watch TV has changed dramatically over the last decade. It's all about on demand, the streamers. And just with pretty much every other aspect of our lives, yes, COVID has had an impact on that too. We've all been stuck at home and we've all been watching more. Across Q1 2020, Netflix was the UK's most popular streaming service, reporting more than 13 million subscriptions, while Amazon Prime had 7.9 million and Now TV 1.6 million. As an audience, we're hooked. But does that give production companies and streaming platforms carte blanche to churn out any old content? Or does it drive them all to produce ever higher quality shows in a fiercely competitive market to satisfy our greedy TV appetites? I'll ask today's guests for their expert, honest thoughts and opinions as key players in the world of TV, giving us their insider's take on all things streaming. A very warm welcome to our guests for this episode. We talk to Jamie Hall, COO of the Scripted Division at Pulse Films, one of the industry's hottest production companies, responsible for the likes of Sky's Gangs of London and two standout Netflix documentaries, Bikram and The Disappearance of Madeleine McCann, to mention a few amongst a phenomenal body of work. And Tom Dodds, Relationship Director, Tech, Media and Telecoms at Barclays, Interestingly, the only high street bank offering funding to streaming video on-demand production will shed some light on how they help make TV production happen through essential financial backing. Welcome both of you and thank you so much for being with me on Paradise Talks. Thanks, Emma. Excited to be here. Great. I think we're going to have an interesting conversation today and I come at this from somebody who works in the creative sector but not specifically in TV. So you'll have to forgive my ignorance if I ask a very silly question, but you can guarantee somebody in our audience might have that same question in their heads. So I thought we'd start with the concept of original content, which is so key, it seems, in my research around this topic. A recent Deloitte study discovered discovered that one of the top priorities for viewers when choosing to pay for streaming services is, unsurprisingly, I guess, the access to original or exclusive content. According to their research, 57% of users gave this as their main motivation, which I have to admit, maybe even a bit less than I had in my mind. But amongst millennials, it's even more important, with 71% of those surveyed giving this as the biggest reason for their choice to subscribe. So how do the streamers keep up with this demand for exclusive content? Is there a constant price and turf war amongst acquisition teams? Jamie, I I might put that one to you first. Sure. Thanks, Emma. Um, I'm not sure there's there's a price or turf war because I think a lot of the different platforms do different things for different markets. Um, But there is definitely, from the production side, there's definitely a huge demand and huge escalation of demand for talent, both behind and in front of the camera. And I think what we're seeing from from where I'm sitting is that there is um, a huge amount of pressure um, on securing unique talent and unique voices um that 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 deliver um deliver content for a global audience and that's that inevitably you know and talent as we all know talent is scarce uh, and that will inevitably lead to um inflation for that talent so it is it is incredibly competitive um but it's it's a good place for all of us to be in at the moment Absolutely. And that that drive for talent um, is, a, is a really interesting kind of insight into this whole process. Uh, Tom, from, from your point of view, just to kind of latch on to what Jamie's commented there, would, would, um, 
with the presence of talent and the kind of however prolific talent might be within one production or another, would that really sway a financial backer's decision as to whether to fund a project or not? Or is it a more creative decision than that? I think it's a mixture of the two. I think, um, you know, essentially when a, when a, when a project is, is being put together, the main funder really is this, the streamer or the broadcaster or the maybe a, there might be a distribution company involved. And, and those guys um, will always like the idea of a, a key piece of talent, which is easier for them to market than a completely new voice. Uh, and that kind of goes back to what Jamie was saying. It's a virtuous circle of, of talent inflation, you know, um, and a lot of the streamers are closing in on on a list Hollywood talent as a way of trying to to boost subscriber numbers and, and get good content on their on their platforms. So you know if you if you're a if you're an a list uh, actor or, or writer or, or, or director these days, you've got more options than you ever had and, and can command a better fee. Um, so I think that, that does fold into it, but I think still. You know, just just like Jamie said, it, it's about having uh, exclusive voices, and those voices don't necessarily need to be, um, you know, based off t- uh, existing talent. They can be new voices, and often you'll see streamers. And I think Netflix is pretty good at this in in um, in creating new talent um, and giving it the opportunity um, to flourish, and often uh by kind of targeting um their content at different parts of their uh, subscriber base they can effectively um create new talent and um it create exclusive uh content um without having to spend a, a fortune you know um you know i think it's been fairly well publicized that something like uh, the rights to friends have cost Netflix a lot of money and a lot of people watch, watch friends on Netflix, but I'd probably wager that they're only watching it cause it's there. Um, and actually what's driving, um, the engagement with, with these streamers is, is the exclusive content. And, and that can be something that, that the, uh, the streamers can, um, kind of create themselves, you know, rather than having to rely on, on existing, uh, kind of library content. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. One of my favorite things as a viewer is, is feeling like I'm discovering some, some new talent because it's, they're being showcased in a, in a new production. I find that really, really exciting. Um, Jamie, is there something that you wanted to add? I've got one more question on um, the universal nature of talent, but I'd love to get your further thoughts on that one. I think you just. I think we're, what we're also seeing is, particularly streamers. I mean, it's something the, the the US studios have done, but streamers, particularly now, are are signing up talent to exclusive deals um, to to protect that supply of content to them. Um, and obviously, that's as a producer, that's quite challenging because you want to have access to the broadest range of talent possible. But you could. But I think it identifies how crucial, um, you know, talent talent is to those platforms yeah absolutely and I, I come from a the, the music industry side of the creative sector and the beautiful thing about music is that it can be universal because it breaks through languages and and cultural barriers and age and so on as can as can tv but I guess maybe um talent is less slightly less universal depending on language and depending on um, cultural expectations and so on—is that true, or is that a misconception from my point of view as a viewer? I think I think it has been in the past, but I think this—I think you've identified an area that's that's actually a really exciting part of the industry at the moment, and I think it's another part of the industry that we're going to see sort of a next wave of growth in, which will be, which will be, you know, foreign, what, what we quaintly consider foreign language, but non-English speaking language crossing over into. Um, English language speaking territories. Um, I mean, we've already started to see it with sort of shows like Gomorrah and and some of the, you know, and obviously the Scandi crime noir drama has crossed over, but I think we're going to see that more and more. Um, and also, you know, with these platforms being truly global, there is there's a greater opportunity for talent from non-English language speaking territories who've not had access, to, who've not 
the, the, the commercial world has not existed to be able to distribute their content as widely around the world. I think with the platforms we've got now, we, we will see that more and more, which, you know, you would hope would, hope would increase the pool of talent available. Yeah, absolutely. I, I noticed um, that with the series, the Netflix series Criminal, that you simultaneously get released in English, French, Spanish, German, as far as I know. I may be missing a few languages, mm. but I think if you get hooked on a show and then you think, oh, no, I'm coming to the end, but, oh, look, I can watch it in a different language, kind of opens up, um, you know, you're in familiar, you're in familiar setting. You're not going to get too nervous about the scene and what's going on, but you're without even realizing it you're watching a subtitled show which is a really nice breakthrough i think um probably probably having had the ground laid by those scandi um series which is um a great place to be when it comes to universality um now we're we're in we're in undoubtedly tough times nobody nobody could question that but there is some there are some healthy um, trends coming through, particularly in the UK industry, um, at an excruciatingly tough time for the creative industries overall. Um, in that streaming really does bring us healthy, positive news. Netflix will have spent, for example, over a billion dollars or £750 million thereabouts on specifically UK productions by the end of 2020, shooting more than 50 TV shows and films here this year. I wonder, Tom, I might come to you on this one first. Do you think this is a trend that's set to continue with the UK continuing to benefit financially, economically from the streaming boom? Yeah, I think I think all the signs are looking really positive and that, that's what I would expect. I mean, Netflix is, is, is obviously a huge investor in... Um, in the UK kind of production industry. Um, they're probably the, the streamer that is spending the most amount of money in the UK. But, um, you know, the the UK production sector is it's something we're very good at. It's, it's, um, it's, it's always, it's been growing for years and I'd like to think would, would, would carry on um, despite a few uh, headwinds around COVID and, and Brexit and those kind of things. But I think from the point of view of the streamers uh, and other kind of US broadcasters, I think, they it's not just the fact that we're great at the mechanics of making it and we've got great talent and infrastructure and all that kind of stuff i think they find uk content interesting you know from an american point of view i think you know it the kind of uh dramas and shows that that we make are you know sort of a bit a little bit es- es- esoteric and uh, just a bit different and unique from what they're used to and i think that that goes down well and there's a good, good few examples of things like that like fleabag i think for example is it's very british and it's something that the u.s guy you know u.s networks or streamers could never make but it, but he's popular you know um so we're good at making stuff there's good uh tax incentives and schemes in this country you know you there are uh, tax incentives for productions all around the world, but I think the UK one is is easy to to obtain, and it's it's quite valuable, and it's driving lots of interest from the streamers and the big US studios. Um, and I think the other thing is that um, I think we're frankly quite cheap in terms of making content as well. If 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 a US film studio or a streamer was looking trying to compare you know, the cost of producing something in the UK versus in, in, in LA where it's a little bit more unionized and, and the, just the general wages wages and things like that are higher than we're seen as pretty cost effective, um, especially with the with the, um, the, the sterling dollar rate being what it is at the moment. So so there's a combination of a few things. I think the groundwork is, is, is there for, um, for a lot more success in the future. Which is really great news. And Jamie... This is this is a kind of marketing question that just popped into my head as as Tom was speaking then about how a UK production company might stand out on a truly global marketplace. Is it still a question of kind of doing the rounds and schmoozing at, at fairs like Mipcom and MipTV and other equivalents, or is that is that really a thing of the past? Is it now just kind of being the best? best in show, if you like, and uh, building a reputation for yourself and everything's done remotely and there's you don't have to do so much of that face-to-face schmoozing and showcasing now? Um, the markets are, are 
you know, those those big markets are, have left less relevance now for mm-hmm. for us as a as a you know as a, especially for my area, which is the, the scripted side of the business, and you know the timelines for us developing a project don't need to fall into going to a market and selling it. Personal relationships with buyers are absolutely intrinsic to to selling a show and getting it produced. So there is a you know when we when we can all start flying again, there is a lot of air miles that are required in terms of visiting you know potential buyers in the US, Europe, and the UK. And also now with the the scale of the shows we're producing, you it, it's it's unlikely you can finance a show from just one territory you are looking to finance it across multiple territories so in the answer to your question your work is always your calling card so you need to be making your, the best version of the show that you can make and that and, that, and success leads to success yeah that's something that um i hear in creative conversations across all all creative sectors the idea of just create the best of what you do and the rest will follow rather than trying to create to fit a particular purpose or whatever it might be. And then the flea bags, as, as Tom mentioned earlier, the flea bags of this world will find their place across the globe, which is a brilliant thing for, for UK production. Um, but the, the process of TV production itself is, is something that's quite fascinating to us laymen. It's a seemingly glamorous mystery to to most of us in the audience but realistically and you've just confirmed this with the kind of trawling around the world you know to buyers and so on which is after the production process itself the actual production process presumably is months and months and sometimes years of hard graft how far ahead of broadcast that we might watch on release on a on a streaming platform how far in advance uh, would the average TV show go into production, Jamie? Um, I, I think the first thing to make clear is that TV production is rarely glamorous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs> the last the last time Tom and I met on set was in a multi-storey car park in Tottenham. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and there was uh, no food for left for me either when uh, when it was lunchtime. I was too late, so I had to go and oh, buy my own food. So there you go. Tom, I'm so sorry, and we've got no <laughs> catering. We're just sitting behind screens today, so we can't even be glamorous ourselves. The life, okay, the life of a poor just... banker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what we all think about bankers. You poor things. Um, so, Jamie, okay, multi-story car park, very unglamorous. Yeah. We get that, yeah. The actual production, pro- the actual production process is is pretty intense, and and is it goes on for a long time, and is long hours and all the rest of it. But you know, it's a, it's a fantastic industry to be involved in. I think the average timescales for for getting a production from sort of original idea through to uh, actually completing it. It, it depends on so many different factors. Um, the scripting process is often the process that takes the longest period because at that point you have, you know, you have not very high overhead, so you can take the time to get the scripts absolutely right. And if you don't get the scripts right, um, it's like building a house. If you don't get the architecture plans right before you go and build it, then then you're in real trouble. So, you know. I, I, probably the fastest project I've been involved in 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 sort of initial idea to completion is is eighteen months, but I, I would say that's un, unusual. Um, it's probably sort of two to three years, and and some projects have taken, you know, six years. It, it, it really it, every every production has its own sort of journey. Um, yeah, I can I can well imagine. I, I guess it's like writing a book that you know one book could take somebody a fairly short amount of time, and then another is a is a lifetime's work, which is so admirable and and yeah, and, and incredible. And, and obviously, a lot of heavy lifting is done on the first series. Um, yeah. And once you get once you if you're lucky enough to get a returning series, then you know theoretically your 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 second third fourth fifth series should be should be a lot more straightforward because you you've established the the process and the building blocks of what the show is yeah absolutely that makes complete sense and so from that moment of conception the the light bulb moment would would writers and producers have the audience in mind or would they create what they want to create what they feel passionate about, passionate about, and hope it flies. Or does that really depend on 
who's commissioning the show and kind of what's at stake? Is that a naive question, maybe? Um, I well, I where we personally start from is you know we always start with the talent and what stories do they want to tell, um, and we then we then look at what we as what we what can we bring as producers that is additive to the production um, and the writing process with them. There there are there are times when broadcasters put a call out and say that you know we're really missing a certain genre from our schedules. Um, the danger then is that everybody runs off in that direction, um, and you end up with you know ten projects all it all in the same genre. So, mm. um, generally, I would say we we start with we start with great talent, understanding what stories they want to tell, how can we help them tell that stories, and what can we bring as producers that is additive to that process. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, you mentioned it yourself there, just kind of avoiding trying to avoid not going down the road of creating a plethora of the same genre um sometimes as an audience member it can feel like there really is no more room left on any platform for yet another iteration of a show about housewives or um please let's not have another crime drama to choose from because there's just too many um would you would you kind of proactively put the brakes on and think we're reaching saturation point. I mean, we're going to be coming on to talking about whether we've reached saturation point or could ever reach saturation point with the number of streaming platforms themselves. But within a genre, do you think you would proactively do that and say, okay, we need to stop and we need to look at another type of TV because this we're is not really as prescriptive as that. We, okay. we, we would be, I think we, I think, I think gangs of London is a great example. You know, there has been, a huge amount of gang shows over the years but when we're looking at it we're looking at what can we do that is unique and brings a fresh take on telling telling a genre story such as that um and that's the approach we take it i think i think it would be dangerous to say there are too many crime stories around because also you're 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 taking a snapshot of the market at the moment and if we start if we start developing an idea now, it's not going to hit the screens for probably three years. So, you know, you're trying to second guess what is coming down the line in three years' time. I think we our approach is, if we're going to do a, if we're going to do a crime story or a certain genre, how can we do it in a unique way with amazing talent that, that approaches the genre, in, you know, in a in a very um, different and and um, exciting way as compared to what's been done previously. Yeah, I think that's what the sorry, go sorry, ahead, I'm, sorry. I was just because I, I think that's what the broadcasters want, right? You know, uh, these genres exist because they're popular, and people like watching crime stuff. They like watching programs about housewives, even if some other people people don't. But what the broadcaster wants, what the streamer wants, is a production company to take that genre and do something different with it and unique with it, and and something that puts it above the rest of the the shows you know that are around it within that same genre. And that's what gangs did so well. Um, you know, with, with with the way it d- depicted the kind of the action and and the and the violence, frankly, in, in that show, and and um, kind of brought the international kind of crime um, syndicate type ideas into London. I just thought was was very very original, and I'm you know that that's why that's why Sky and and uh, uh, that's why Sky brought into it. You know, so. Uh, genre stuff is not a problem it's just you just have to try and do something different with it you just don't want another uh murder mystery program about a cop who's got an alcohol problem because we've seen <laughs> seen, seen them lots of times before but there's yeah. but you know there's nothing wrong with crime dramas or, or sci-fi programs or, or whatever um, no, absolutely. You know, it's about and doing something unique with them absolutely i love that that's the beauty of the creative challenge and as a as a viewer please let me beg any production company or financial backer of said production companies do not stop making crime shows because we do love them. But both both scripted and non. I mean, I thought the the work that was done on the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, for example, was a really interesting take on a story that we all thought had been totally rinsed for every possible angle. And then by stretching out across so many episodes you see so many different facets to the story and that's that's not even a scripted show so um so such a challenge but definitely um being addressed really effectively and amazingly and so so powerful um the fact that there's so many iterations of 
of one genre is is fascinating. Um, now, COVID, to to use a, a swear word, has has cursed so much of us, um, our, our our creative sectors, including TV production, which was on hold, of course, um, in in the days of serious serious lockdown. How far down the road back to full production are we now? Uh, Tom, I'm going to come to you on that one first, just because I think you bring an interesting point of view in terms of, you know, who's coming to you with ideas and stuff. Uh, do you think people are brimming with 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 new projects? Yeah, sure. I, I think my, my kind of helicopter view of this is that when I talk to clients and, and companies in the sector is that, see, first lockdown stopped everything for about three, four months, but... Um, you know, everyone's been working extremely hard to get back to work and, and subsequent lockdowns and tiered systems or whatever um, have not stopped um, productions, uh, you know, progressing. Obviously, it sounds like it's extremely tough to, to get stuff done these days of all the protocols and the testing and the, the social distancing. And it just sounds like a nightmare for everyone, everyone involved. So I'm only tangentially kind of uh, see that stuff. But, um, you know, the, the sector is back to work. Um, and I think a lot of the production companies spent the time during that lockdown period, you know, developing shows um, from scratch or, or, you know, progressing the development of some projects they had. Um, and I think a lot of my clients seem to have good commissioning momentum into the new year because um, although they weren't making the stuff that already been asked to make by the broadcasters and the streamers, um, there's a, there's a clear supply side issue in the market and these guys are still hungry for content and people are watching content more than they ever were and got nothing else to do. So um, people are getting back to work and it feels to me generally across the board, like everyone's looking pretty optimistically at 2021 as a, as a way of getting, uh, you know, being able to start producing commissions that they've been gaining this year uh, and also, also, you know, getting back to, resuming the productions of, of the projects that were stalled this year this year so it sounds my kind of helicopter view is that it's it's pretty positive actually that's really refreshing, as you can be refreshing healthy news to hear Jamie how about you what how, how do you feel from a production yeah, company view I do I mean I think I think it's it just shows how remarkably ingenious the TV industry and film industry is in the UK in that we have adapted so quickly to such different conditions that we have to work in um it has you know i it will bear some scars on the industry for for quite a while um and you know i think we have to take a very close look at the way we staff most of our productions you know we are we are almost 100 percent staffed by freelancers and they've had a really really tough year um and i'm I know very sadly that we've lost some of them out of the industry because, you know, the, the peripatetic nature of them earning and being employed has been too much to bear during this process. Um, but I think, you know, I think we, I think the industry is bouncing back. I think there's, there are some challenges, you know, we've obviously got vaccines coming through, but I think COVID protocols for shooting are going to be around for quite a while into next year. And with that comes increased costs in terms of, of production um and i also think you know that we're starting to see it now but i think we'll, we'll really see it in january when we've we've got shows that had been on hiatus because of covid are coming back and trying to complete we've got new productions coming through and we've got broadcasters and platforms desperate to fill their schedules because they had a period where no content was being produced so i think we're going to see real challenges in terms of crew being available and and talent both in front of and behind the camera being available for this this demand you know i mean it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a in enviable problem to have given where we've all been um but i think it is a challenge to the industry that we need to need to look a good hard look at and see what see what we can do to make the industry as sustainable as possible and also to continue the rapid growth that we've seen in the uk yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important, uh, something that you mentioned there, Jamie, is to remember those freelancers who had tried and tried desperately to hang on and then just couldn't hang on any longer and have had to 
look across different horizons to find some kind of income during this what must have been an absolutely desperate time for them so mm. i think and let's yeah. not forget that there's there's a whole ecosystem which feeds into television and film and that's absolutely. you know that's theater that's live events it you know and those guys those guys are even even worse place than we are you know they i you know they goodness knows when theater will be back on its feet but we 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 have to we can't just look at ourselves as, as you know, a, a single entity. There is a whole ecosystem, especially in the UK. And, and going back to what Tom was saying earlier, you know, the reason we produce such unique content that is different to the rest of the world is because we have this amazing heritage in theatre and writing that leads into, you know, that develops authored voices that then transitions into TV and film. And that's something we really have to take a good hard look at and protect as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been reflecting recently that, you know, we, we have this term creative sector and there's been some pretty awful things suggested like, oh, just go and retrain and you'll be fine, which it's clearly, you know, when you've got a lifetime's work behind you is is, is not something to, to have to hear. But we think of creativity and the creative sector as being based on maybe loosely the arts or, you know, something slightly abstract like that. In fact, it's based on sheer hard work, determination, tenacity, innovation and resourcefulness and uh, vision. And I guess if we can all keep a faith in that, a collective sort of solidarity and faith in that and help each other out towards some sort of light at the end of the tunnel with all this um, work that is going to need to be done by somebody, um, then hopefully that can be a, a good news story to look forward to um but as you say it's it's gonna it's gonna take some time because um the restrictions are going to be in place not we can't say that a, a vaccine in the in the pipeline is a is a miracle so um yeah that's there's a lot to there's a definitely a lot to think about and a lot to consider um but none of this would be possible none of none of the production we're talking about none of the potential opportunities that we're talking about for next year would be possible without the finance let's be honest good old bankers tom this is where you come in <laughs> um at, at what stage again this is from a layman's point of view at what stage in the production or concept process would a production company approach the likes of Barclays? I say the likes of, but you are actually the only high street bank. Is that is that true or is that just bad research on my point? <laughs> uh, it, 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 yeah, I think it is true. Uh, there are, of course, other banks that will, will put finance into the production sector, but um, none of the other kind of, you know, main four or five high street banks that you, you could name or see a branch on your high street would, would do it apart from us. Yeah. Um, I guess in terms of how this works, you know, for banks, you know, lending is is low reward and therefore needs to be low risk. So mm -hmm. our involvement in a show, we're not um, we're not enjoying any of the profits of the show, or we're not getting distribution income. All we want is our loan to be repaid and then a little bit of interest for the for the you know in, in return for giving the loan in the first place. So as well. And some and some catering every now and then, yeah. If I get in <laughs> yeah, yeah, not sure. in a multi-story <laughs> car park. Sorry. <laughs> so, so the real risk really is it, it, financial risk is is being um, made by the broadcasters or streamers or distribution companies that are actually financing the program. You know, mm. um, so what what we do is uh, we bridge the timing difference between. Um, you know, having to pay out the costs for the cast and the crew and the freelancers and set building, you know, anything that needs to, um, that's required to make the program. So bridging the, the time and distance between those costs and when the money comes in from broadcasters um, or the distribution companies, just depending on their own payment terms and the way they want to fund the program from a timing point of view. Um, and often with large projects, um, drama projects, there's a, tax incentive that the producer can claim from the government um, and those uh, tax incentives don't come back from the government until the production is finished and the spend can be identified and presented to the to the to the revenue so um, that's where where banks like Barclays can get involved um, it's really just about uh, kind of bridging those those timing differences uh, there are other other kind of uh, bespoke lenders and other banks that will get involved at, the, at an earlier stage. There's this 
concept of, of gap financing where a bank might might help to uh, cover the overall kind of cost of the budget of a show, but they would need to be very comfortable that the show could sell uh, internationally in order for the for you know for the f- uh, financier to to be uh, repaid. Um, so so generally, you know, we're doing the last part and we're doing the the least risky part and and the the, the bulk of the financing, if you like, the cost of the production is coming from from the streamers or the broadcaster or the distribution uh, the distribution company. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and Jamie, from a from a production company's point of view, um, how much influence would you say that? whoever's providing the finance had over the overall production is there any is there any creative influence or is that kind of a no-no um in tv that it's a it's a no-no I, 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 when you say finance i mean if you mean banks and, and sort of commercial lenders then they have no input into the uh into the editorial well, yeah, not that i'm yeah. saying tom tom wouldn't yeah have well <laughs> nor, nor should i because the the, the the film snob in me would probably start turning down the odd, the odd <laughs> transaction but um, no we do unless it's like a snuff film or something that might you know give us some <laughs> reputational risk as a bank where yeah. we we just uh, we keep away from all that stuff i mean in in film it is more common um for for investors to have sort of influence that and and a right of sort of a right of um, say over you know cuts on films and things like that, but in TV, generally not. No, I mean obviously, your if your financier is a platform or a broadcaster, then they have a huge say on what you're what you're producing and 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 um, delivering to them. Yeah, which makes absolute sense. I'm just relieved to hear that um, my my local branch of Barclays will not be dictating the script of the next hit TV show. That's kind of I'm I'm kind of relieved, I have to say. Um, but Tom, more seriously, um, in terms of the availability of funding, how much financial support, whether through banks like Barclays or um, other sources of funding, how much is available for aspiring emerging TV? Uh, writing talent, for example, and producers out there who are really dreaming of seeing their work streaming into global homes. Is that a pipe dream or is something available to them? Um, not really, no. <laughs> not not in the context of an aspiring, uh, you know, script writer or, or aspiring showrunner, um, unfortunately. I, I think the um, what I tend to say to people I bump into is that you should, if you are a, an aspiring, uh, you know, showrunner of a, of a program then you should try and anchor yourself into a production company with you know an established production company with some credibility because um you know production companies are always looking for new talent and new voices because they need to be able to um you know pitch new and unique and interesting ideas to broadcasters and broadcasters uh, tend to want the comfort of a established producer you know, involved so that they know the program can actually get mechanically made because as we've just been talking about, they're very complicated things to, to, to complete, you know. So, um, you know, for an individual to, a newcomer to in the industry to pitch directly to a broadcaster, that's the wrong um, way of doing it. You really need to find a, a good production company to to help you, you know, on that journey. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that production company would have good feedback in terms of script writing and edits and, and all the things that you need to do to be able to get it to a acceptable standard, if a you large, like. A large, I mean, a large part of what we do as a, as producers at Pulse is, is not just the physical production. I mean, that's that's really important to us, but we have a huge amount of time and energy and a team of people that is devoted to just developing ideas with writers and working working through ideas with writers and working on scripts with writers to get them to the point where we feel we can sell them um or we can or we can develop them onto the next stage um so i i, I completely agree with tom and is that it's it is incredibly rare for um you know a, a, an independent sole writer to go and pitch and sell a show on their own without having a producer or a studio behind them yeah it sounds collectively like you've given everybody some very wise words of advice there and to be honest that's no surprise I guess sometimes when you have a burning idea in your mind that you'd love to to show on the screens of the world 
you feel a little bit impatient, but there's always a process to go through and there's always more experienced people to, to learn from. Um, mm. So, yeah. And get, get, and, get, and, you know, get yourself an agent. That's the other thing. That's, okay. a, really, that's a really important part of your toolkit as a, as a writer. Yeah, yeah. Again, very, very wise words. Um, now, without all of this uh, nurturing of emerging talent and the next generation of, of brilliant filmmakers, producers, writers, whoever they may be, um, we wouldn't have the choice that we have. But the audience will always demand choice. But we do all know that very familiar feeling of now scrolling and scrolling through hundreds of titles and still somehow miraculously finding nothing to watch, which is ridiculous. But maybe we are blinded by choice. Could there ever be such a thing as too much choice, too many streaming platforms to browse? I'm, I'm going to come to you, Jamie. I, I guess coming from the voice of Pulse, you would say, no, there can be, never be enough. We want some work. Thank you very much. There is a part of me that, yes, as a, as a business person, there is a part of me who, who is thinking that. But as a consumer, I find it as bewildering as I think you do in terms yeah. of the amount of choice out there. And before coming on here, I was just thinking rather worryingly through how many subscriptions we've got in my house. And I think we've probably got, <laughs> I think we've probably got six subscriptions now wow. to various different, because obviously, you know, you know, we have Disney Plus because the kids love it. We've got Netflix, we've got Amazon, you know, and various other ones. And it seems on a daily basis, we're being bombarded with new new and different offerings. Um, yeah. And it still feels to me, and I, maybe I'm getting this wrong and I haven't noticed yet, but it still seems to me that no one's really cracked the algorithm that, that, that once you've seen one thing, it gives you something new and fresh that you would be interested in. All I, all I seem to get offered up is something very similar to the thing I've just watched, which as a human that's not what really interests me i want to have that diversity of content being presented mm. to me and that's you know that's what was so is so beautiful and unique about you know psbs and their scheduling systems in, in that you you get presented with this array of content that is very diverse and very different and, and i suppose because there's only sort of three or four channels you can choose them quite easily but when you go to sort of one platform and as you say you're presented with this huge array of content it is it's incredibly hard to find your way through that system. Yeah, absolutely. And Tom, not from a business point of view, but from a consumer's point of view, you don't necessarily have to name names of uh, providers, but are there any subscriptions in your household that you're thinking of ditching? Like numbers wise? Like ditching? One, one or two that I could live without paying this fee every month? Or are you happy with what you've got? I'm trying to think how many I've got now. I've got one, two, three, four, five. I've got seven or eight. Wow. There are, uh, yeah. So the the, the tyranny of choice, uh, as James was talking about, is is true in my household as well. For me personally, I yeah. think um, there probably are a couple that I could shave off or, or don't use as much as I would like to. But um, you know, I've got a mixture of you know usual Netflix and Amazons and a couple of kind of snobby film services as well so i do feel like i've got a good spread of stuff to watch it's just time and effort um in, in doing so and i think um uh i think the, the the streamers do need to think about user interface a bit more um and trying to find a way of selling the content that they've got and and making it appealing to to people using it you know it, it does often feel it's just rows of tiles isn't it of, of yeah. film posters or tv posters it must be um, Tom. It must Tom. It must be inevitable that we're going to see some type of consolidation or or some, you know, probably failures of some services just because they don't find their market. Wouldn't you say? I think I think so. Definitely. I think there's a lot coming. A lot of services coming out in the states, um, and it feels like every network, you know, wants to have its own subscriber service. But surely, that most of those won't work, um, and yeah, there will be I, I some would, consolidation. I, yeah, I would. I would agree. I mean, it's, it'll be an interesting space to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with all of these, we, I think you're right there, Tom, about, you know, every single network seems to be bringing out their own um, premium streaming offering. But does that range of on-demand TV options mean that providers will be kept on their toes pricing-wise? I'm talking subscription pricing-wise. Or 
Is there a risk that some of the more um, mature platforms get complacent about audience loyalty and they just keep putting those tiles up row after row after row? They don't really think about that imaginatively and they don't think about their subscription pricing or do you think it's a permanent churning of of thought and strategy behind the scenes well i think um i think netflix could um you know start to be complacent i don't think they are but i think they could be to an extent because they've got first mover advantage and the, the great thing about a subscription business model whether it's a gym or a magazine subscription or a netflix is that once you start paying for it you forget about it don't you and even if you're not using it you still giving them the money um but I, I don't think it's there isn't much room for any of these services to be complacent um and it's tough and i think they have to keep investing in new content it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive content you know that doesn't have to keep spending hundreds of millions of dollars on you know rights to friends but you need stuff that that people want to watch and, and engages people and and sets you apart so i think it's difficult for netflix at the moment in that They've um, they've been so disruptive in the industry, and as when they started, they were a, a great source of revenue for I don't know a Disney, in that they were you know paying a nice premium on on library content that Disney already had, where it's you know Marvel Studios or whatever, um, and then you know the studios started to realise that Netflix are eating their lunch, um, so they've started to pull their content back into their own platforms which does spread the content all over the place and make it more difficult for consumers who probably wanted to go into Netflix or Amazon because, because it's a nice aggregated kind of library of all kinds of different content and it's worth a small amount of money compared to a Sky subscription, you know? Yeah. So if you pull the, all the content across different platforms in the end, you know, I think some of them are going to have to fail because there's only so many services people will want to subscribe to or, or can even think about. I think it will also be interesting to see whether any of those platforms start taking advertising as well, which obviously, you know, not I don't know of any that do at the moment because that's obviously a very obvious revenue stream in addition to the subscription. Um, but I also think the thing that really keeps them keen is that, they, they've got real-time data as to what's going on with their subscriptions. It's not like the PSB model that are looking for sort of quarterly ad results. Um, I think that's really, really valuable to them. So I, I can't believe this, but we somehow have raced through our conversation and we're coming to an end. You've both given us so much insight and so much food for thought. Um I'm going to be thinking a little bit more carefully when I choose what I'm watching, I have to say, at home. And I might be shaving off some of those subscriptions myself. Um, I've got two, two I, I, really, I would really discourage you from doing that. I think I you need as, much, need as much content in your life as possible. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as we continue to be mostly at home, I really do agree with you on that one. But um, uh, just two questions. One is... Are you both bingers or do you have the patience to watch like an episode a week or a day or what's your kind of consumption rate? I put Jamie, go first on that one. My consumption rate is very poor, but that's mainly because I have a young family and okay, um, okay. don't don't have the spare time to watch it. If if we are able to carve out time, then yeah, we'll watch two or three episodes in a night uh, at mm -hmm. the weekend if we've, if we've got it. Okay. Yeah. I'd, I'd say that's pretty healthy. I'm, I mean, you know, there are bingers who will go all night. I think when you have children in the equation, that's just not an option. No, but it's not a good mix. No, probably not. Um, Tom, what about you? Binger or with some patience? So I, I also have small children, so um, I'm time poor in that regard, but okay. I do prefer binging and certainly pre-children, I used to binge. I don't really like watching stuff like uh, on a weekly basis, I just don't feel like I'm pulled into the story in the way that I can when I've been. So, yeah, um, I used to like so something like Game of Thrones. I used to just wait until the whole thing finished and then binge it over a weekend. But I got annoyed because it got the program became so popular that I couldn't do that and, and you know and, and avoid any news or spoilers for six yeah. weeks while someone you know yeah. uh, while I waited for all the episodes to come out. So, um, but yeah, I, I do. I, I would rather binge. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Very interesting to get the insider's view on that one. Um, and maybe just a final word from each of you on 
any um, intel or just projection that you would have about what the next big viewing trend might be? And it could be scripted or non. I guess, Jamie, if I'm coming to you, it's going to be scripted. But um, any thoughts on that? Um, I think I would be very foolish to try and predict what people are, what the next big trend is going to be. Mm -hmm. I I think the only prediction I would make is it's probably going to be not what we all expect it to be. And that's, that again, is just the beauty of our industry in that we are constantly evolving and iterating and, and developing great new content for, for that huge audience out there. Yeah, great. I love that sneaky answer. Expect the unexpected, <laughs> nicely avoided. Are you are you a politician by any chance? <laughs> um, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> nice. And Tom, uh, are you gonna are you gonna follow the party line there and say uh, no? I'm not giving you a prediction. Well, I uh, I might come up with a couple of predictions, but I don't know whether they'll be true or not. But um, I'm I'm interested in this idea that. Uh, what you know what disney's doing with star wars and marvel where they're trying to blur the lines between tv and film so they're using that ip and they're exploiting it yeah um in, in different ways and i think you're gonna have these kind of shared universes where um you know whatever the next marvel film that you watch doesn't make any sense if you haven't watched the tv show that goes along with it that's that seems interesting to me whether it will work or not i don't know but i think there's a there's a drive from Disney to try and make that work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also think that um, you will probably continue to see the kind of micro targeting of content. So in that, uh, you know, your Netflixes and your Amazons, they know the demographic of the people that are watching the, their shows, uh, and I think they're getting better at this. So they'll probably start to make content that is you know, focus directly at different demographics and different types of users, subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll probably find that the, the viewing, you know, what a what a teenager will see on on his or her Netflix, uh, um, you know, interface will be different from um, an old person like me. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think you'll probably start to see more of that. Um, Very interesting. Well. Thank you both. Um, you've you've given us some real food for thought today. And uh, sadly, that does bring us to the end of this episode of Paradise Talks. But there's just time for me to thank my brilliant guests and I should say insightful guests, because you certainly were that. Um, Jamie Hall from Pulse Films and Tom Dodds from Barclays. Thank you both so much. Um, I'd also like to thank our producer, Luke, and Talia Levine, who is from Broadcast and has helped so much in putting this episode together. So thank you to Talia. We'll be back soon with another episode taking a fresh industry insider's view of another strand of the creative sector. To discover more about the agency and Paradise Talks, visit www.paradise.london.